Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fist podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 310, and today's guest is Wes Schroll, CEO and founder at Fetch. This episode is the second live interview that we recorded live at Startup Boston Week at Suffolk University, which was a ton of fun, and maybe it is something that I should do more often, so stay tuned. As you'll hear, Wes is a native New Englander. He grew up in Acton and launched Fetch while he was in school at the University of Wisconsin. The company has office locations in Madison, Chicago, and other locations, but he is local to the Boston area again as he moved back a couple of years ago. Fetch is a consumer engagement platform that rewards shoppers for buying the brands that they love. The company has over 700 employees and has raised over a half a billion dollars in capital with its most recent round valuing the company at greater than two and a half billion dollars. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like advice for when you are in pre-product market fit and figuring out the right problem to solve, Wes's background story and how entrepreneurship was always a focus, how the idea of Fetch came to fruition while at the University of Wisconsin, and how he met his co-founder, Tyler Kennedy, the early days of the company and how they built the foundation of customers and consumers, the current scale of the business, which includes 6 million daily active users and $150 billion of aggregated spend, lessons learned from scaling the company and how he learned to lead, why they don't use surveys for making decisions, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. Is your company hiring? If the answer is yes, then you might want to add a VentureFizz subscription. It is our employment branding and hiring solution that helps to keep your company top of mind for our target audience of professionals in the tech industry. A VentureFizz subscription includes an employment branding page, unlimited postings to our job board, access to all of our exclusive employment branding content, and more. Send an email to info at for more information. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Wes. Wes, thanks so much for joining us here at the podcast stage at Startup Boston Week. Appreciate your time here. Of course. My pleasure. It's an honor to be here. And I'm really excited because Suffolk has put on this amazing production where we have this podcast stage and their support of Boston or Startup Boston Week is amazing because we need more of this in the Boston tech scene. So kudos to all the organizers, the volunteers, and of course, the people from Suffolk for making this happen. And I got to be honest, when they reached out to me about guests for this live recording of the podcast, they're like, "Um, you should interview Wes, the founder and CEO of Fetch. And I'm like, I know of Fetch, but I didn't think they were a Boston company. And I looked and I'm like, they're more like a Wisconsin, Chicago company. Why is, why are they somehow connecting this founder to the Boston tech scene? Come to find out, you're a local. Yes, I am. Uh, originally from Acton, grew up there, went to school there, and still absolutely have a, a, a deep, deep affinity and loyalty to New England. So I moved back here about two years ago now, and while the company's still based out in Madison and largest offices in Chicago, I'm here. We have a small team here and not going anywhere. Well, we've got a lot to talk about, but before we get into your background story, I wanted to talk about pre-product market fit. Okay, so building a company is really, really hard. Finding that product market fit is hard. So what advice do you have for entrepreneurs during that stage when you just, you're in that slog, you're trying to figure it out and you just haven't hit that trajectory yet or that aha moment. So how, how do you get through that, those times? Yeah, I think one of the first things that it's important to zoom in on is just find the problem statement that you're trying to solve. 
um, you know, whatever the product is going to one day be, it, it does need to solve a problem that is otherwise not being served or solved by some other service that's out there. So I think always grounding yourself in that why is really important to give you the fortitude to then go into the struggle part, which is going to be lots and lots of rapid iteration trying to figure out what is the right product to solve that problem that you've had. So I think for us, we had this very strong conviction that we knew of a problem that existed. Everyone has to go grocery shopping. Everyone goes shopping in general. People all know that they should save money. No one actually enjoys doing that. So you combine those two together, we're talking about a massive opportunity space and a problem that everyone resonates with. Now, how you solve that is gonna be much more difficult. And so for us, you just start with small bite-sized problems uh, and, and start tackling those, start iterating on, okay, well, what if we, for us, it was like, start with a website. Okay, do we start with a website on that? Yeah, but purchases are happens, happening in the physical world. You have a receipt. What are you going to do with a receipt and a website? Okay, maybe it is a mobile app. Maybe it deserves to be a mobile app. And you just start like ticking through these uh, ideas that you have and then just follow them through to where the logical breakpoint is. And then if you say, okay, now I need to go again. Sometimes the, the tough part is you have to go back a couple of stages and retrace your steps and go down another one. But at least you're still moving. I think it's really important that you're, you're putting things out there. You're getting market feedback. Um, one thing I always hear from early entrepreneurs is they're like afraid to share the idea. They want an NDA in place or something. Right. <laughs> I think if you're early on, just go for it. Talk with whoever. Yeah. Like the, Solving the problem and actually building the product are totally different things. So don't be worried about that. Ideas are a dime a dozen. It comes down to the team to execute on it, which is the uh, the, the big difference maker. Okay, so uh, we're going to talk about Fetch. And when I was preparing for this conversation, I realized entrepreneurship was something that you gravitated towards early on, right? Like, so there's a, a blog post on the Fetch website uh, about 30 pieces of advice because you just turned 30. I did, yeah. Happy birthday. Yeah. Um, you were starting companies in like high school, right? Yeah. I, I don't think even if you were to ask my younger self at the time, are you starting a company? I probably wouldn't have even said yes. I was finding problems that I thought had not been solved. And I was just spending a lot of time trying to come up with ideas of what could solve them. That then led me to stumbling down. Okay. So if you want to solve a problem, um, you got to figure out you know, what is the market opportunity? How is the product going to work? If it is a product, I started to learn how to file provisional patents. I filed an LLC. So I, I think for me, I had no idea that what I was doing was starting a business. I was just very uh, awkwardly stumbling around piecing these things together. And then I, you know, by the end of high school, I'd realized, oh, this is what it's like to start a business. And wow, this is what I want to do. So then by that point, I had a lot more direction and clarity in my life of like, this is what I want to focus on doing. Um, and that was really helpful to be able to stumble onto that really early on. But yeah, it was uh, early days that I was working on those things. And it was legit. It was legit products. It was a phone case wallet, a tablet for low income school districts. So you weren't just starting like a landscaping company or a painting company, right, which is pretty typical. Okay, so why did you choose to go to the University of Wisconsin to study entrepreneurship there? Yeah, so uh, the Big Ten was always of interest to me, and both of my parents had actually lived in Madison, Wisconsin uh, prior to me being born. My brother was actually even born there, so they knew that I liked a smaller city, but still one that was large enough to be bigger than just the school that was there, have additional resources, and they recommended that I check it out. They thought I might like the city, and as I did a little 
research, I found out that they were just starting an entrepreneurship program. So I reached out to the guy that was running it and introduced them, introduced myself, told him about the startups I'd been doing while I was in high school and said, I would love to, you know, meet with you while I come out to visit. If I can even pick your brain for 10 minutes and hear about what you're building, that'd be really helpful for me. And I was blown away because I went out there on a, you know, a beautiful fall Wisconsin day. So it was like 42 degrees and raining. And he's like, hey, why don't you grab your coat? Let's go for a walk. And he took me on a three-hour one-on-one tour of campus. He showed me all the resources. And more than anything, he showed me that they're investing their time in really putting, you know, entrepreneurs first, learning from entrepreneurs and trying to support them. So from that trip on, that was the sole reason I went there. Um, Now, the city also is beautiful and amazing. I fell in love with that. But, like, he was the reason. And to see that passion behind uh, entrepreneurship, honestly, I feel similar to what we're seeing here at Suffolk. It's like putting it front front and center, just making sure that people understand this is something that is important and that students should get access to. That, That really resonated with me. Okay, so the idea of Fetch came when you were at the University of Wisconsin. How did you meet your co-founder, Tyler? Because he has an entrepreneurial bent to him, too. Yes. So during my sophomore year, I was um, had just gotten into the business school, so I was taking my first business classes. I had actually already come up with the idea in between my freshman and sophomore year. I just moved out of the dorm. I'm in an apartment. For the first time ever, I'm doing all this grocery shopping. And I have an amazing mom who's telling me, you should focus on saving money. So as I'm doing all this shopping, I'm trying to find out ways of saving money. And I'm like, wow, there's a lot of different ways. None of them are overly exciting and earning me anything of substance, uh, at least for the amount of effort I'm having to put in. So I'd become obsessed already by the beginning of my sophomore year with this concept of like, here's the problem. This is a problem. I want to solve this. So I spent, you know, a couple, I think six or nine months working on it, pulled together an advisor. And at the end of my sophomore semester, the final project for the class was to write a business plan. And I happened to turn to the guy sitting next to me and I was like, hey, I have an idea that I've been working on for the last six months or whatever it was. And I was like, do you want to work with me on the business plan? He's like, absolutely. Lo and behold, it was Tyler Kennedy uh, who who became my co-founder and helped me start the business. And... It was awesome because we wrote this business plan together and we're like, that was a lot of work to write a 12-page business plan. And we knew that the school had a business plan competition where the winner would get $20,000. So we're like, okay, let's take what we wrote for the school and let's enter it into the business plan competition. And we're like, okay, even that seems logical, but I wonder if other schools have these. So it was like, maybe 45 days before the end of the semester and I start calling all my friends. They go to Boston College, University of Massachusetts, Amherst, all these different schools. I'm like, do you have a business plan competition? And if they said yes, we would say, okay, can you enter this? And we'll put co-authors as our names and you can be one of the founders too. <laughs> and we did that. And I, you know, I flew around, Tyler and I were flying around the country for the last 45 days of school and we won $185,000 in cash and Talk prizes. Talk about hustle. That <laughs> it is was, hustle. It was finding the gray areas that we could play in. Sure. That's amazing. So there you go. Like people are trying to raise initial angel seed, friends and family money. There's $185,000. It was not diluting any ownership in the company. It, that is exactly right. I think it allowed both of us to maintain a much tighter uh, control on the business early on, which was super important as you go through pro- trying to find product market fit. It takes time. Uh, and if you have the conviction, it's much easier versus investors can get a little spooked as you're pivoting one way to another one. So I think it was 
a critical step in getting to where we're at now that we were willing to go out there and find ways to self-fund it, even though we didn't have money ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that was something that I always encourage people to look at. Does your school have a program like this? And even if your school doesn't, there's all kinds of ones nowadays that are doing it. And yeah, as you said, non-dilutive. They didn't take equity. It was literally just a check. Yeah. Uh, so it was a great way of starting it. And it showed the investors that we're scrappy. We're going to do this with or without you. That attracted a lot of people to want to participate. Yeah. I mean, I think of founders that find the problem that experience it firsthand are the ones that you want to back. And then when you see that hustle, it's like, okay, this person's going to run through walls just to make this happen. So what I always like to talk about like early versions, like what, like, you know, eventually you hit product market fit, but before that, when we talked about that pre-market, like what were some early versions of what you were working on that maybe weren't exactly what consumers wanted? So the funny part was like our first instinct was actually to build what fetches today. Wow. However, the technology wasn't there. Right, okay. So we weren't able to. So we pivoted away from this concept of, hey, confirm, you take, you know, whatever you bought at a store, take the receipt, and then translate that into rewarding a consumer. The problem was, like, how do you get the information off the receipt? And at the time, phones weren't powerful enough to be able to use OCR live on device, pull those items off and actually reward people. This is like 10 years ago. Yeah, exactly. So like, I I remember we had tried it and like the phones are overheating and you haven't even taken one picture yet. (laughs) Um, So we're like, okay, that's not going to work. So we instead pivoted and said, well, what's another way that we can get the data we need, which is what items are customers buying in a grocery store that then power our rewards engine? So we said, well, if we partner with the store, they know what items a customer buys because they check you out. Mm-hmm. So they have to. So we actually then launched our first product, product, which was called Shop Fetch. So you actually would use your phone to walk through the store, scan barcodes of every item you're wanting to buy. It would show you the price. It would keep running total for sure. you. And then you could check out on a tablet at the end um, just by pressing a button and then pay for it as you normally would. Um, so that for us was actually our first version that we ran the business around for four years. Mm-hmm. And we, we had scaled up to 100 stores uh, after four years, but the problem was it took so much energy to launch every new store. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had to train all their employees, and then turnover was super high, so you had to train new people. You had to train the customers to change their behavior and scan items as they walked through the store, which was really hard. Really hard. So for us, so many reasons, we saw that people were interested, but it was a very small portion of people that were interested. A lot of stores were interested, small portion of stores that were interested. So we're like, at some point, we knew those were limiting factors that were going to hinder how large we could grow. So then we went back to like, hey, can we crack the code on this technology for scanning receipts? And we finally got there in 2017, four years into it, said, hey, I think we can do this. And we decided to pivot the entire business, risk it all. We shut down that product, changed over the product to the fetch product that exists today. And we were very fortunate that that had product market fit very early. We took all the learnings from the first four years, put it into the second product, and it I'll tell you the story of how it new product market fit, but right away, it, it, we knew. We knew. Well, I'm sure it. you had some pushback of like, you've invested so much time into this product and you're just going to like pretty much scrap it and just go in this direction. Like that's a, that's a big leap. Back to my earlier point. I was so thankful that we had raised our first money off of our own self-funding it mm-hmm. because I don't think we would have owned enough of the company to convince our investors to do what we did. We were in a fortunate position that we owned enough com- of the company where we could make the decision. And uh, trust me, we had some very unhappy investors at that point. Um, but luckily, they bared with us. We told them, look, this is what management believes. Just stick with us. Uh, and, and fortunately, we were able to still make it work. 
Okay, so before you saw the hockey stick adoption, you had to go out and convince retailers, CPG companies, like then you had to get consumers to use this. So how did you get that initial adoption? So on ShopFetch, it was a three-sided marketplace, right? right? Yeah. All three that you just mentioned had to work with us. So w- w- from CPGs, the consumer packaged goods companies, we knew that that's who was going to fund the rewards. Mm-hmm. We knew that we needed the retailers because we had to integrate with their point-of-sale system to right. get the purchase data. The consumers, we knew we just had to please because like, at the end of the day, that's our true boss is the consumers. So the first two are what we need to solve. And if we solve those first two, consumers would come around. But how do you get brands if you don't have retailers? So for us, we said, okay, well, we have this money that we raised from doing the business plan competitions and some early angels that came in afterwards. We said, well, we need to hire a team to build the product. So we did that. But we said, how do we, how do we take away one of those legs of the stools? So what we did is we actually pretended we had CPG partners. So we would upload all of Kraft Heinz products, all of PepsiCo's products, and we would, out of our own dollars, fund people to buy those products. So we could go into a grocery store and say, hey, let us launch at your store and look at all of these offers that we'll bring to your consumers. They didn't know that it was us funding them. Yeah. And all of a sudden, then it was only a two-sided marketplace. Got it. Now we could sign up grocers, and as we signed up grocers, customers then would come because we'd stand in store and convince people to download it, literally, like, hand-to-hand combat to get people to download. Did you really? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. There's lots of pictures of More me. More hustle. More yes. hustle. And we found internship programs from students who wanted course credit, and we partnered with their teachers to let them be ambassadors oh, and stores for us. This is such a valuable, <laughs> valuable lesson. Because people are always like, what's the growth hack? What's the growth hack? Right? No. Hard you work like, on hard this work. one. <laughs> love it. I love that. So then we got enough uh, customers using it that then we could circle back to brands and say, look, we have retailers, we have Proof. brands. So then all of a sudden they came on board. Um, so it was, I always recommend to people like two-sided marketplaces are really hard. Three-sided, next to impossible. And the only way of doing it is you have to get rid of one of the legs and just like hack that and then you can have a chance at getting it right. <laughs> all right, well, let's, Bring the audience up to speed to where the business is now. Yeah. Like the scale. So we launched the Fetch app in 2017. So in the last, um, what is that, six years? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Lose six track long at this years. Point. So in the last six years, you know, we scaled from having no consumers using it to over 6 million daily active users today. Um, daily active daily users. active yeah. users opening the app and engaging with it every single day Amazing. put that in perspective starbucks who's known as one of the best loyalty programs yep. in the u.s has about 2.2 million daily wow. active users um so a lot of people using us across the country um about 12 and a half million unique households use us every single month mm-hmm. uh which is about 10 percent of the u.s households that are in the u.s um, they submit over 30 receipts per month Um, so they're super, super active and engaged, um, which means we touch about $150 billion a year of spend that we aggregate together for, on behalf of our consumers and use to go and negotiate deals with brands, retailers, restaurants, gas stations to say, Hey, these customers are spending 150 billion right now. You get a hundred million of that come and issue them fetch points and we can help you grow that to 120 million. That's our, that's our business. We help sell sales is what I tell people. And we allow the consumer to participate in that value chain. Um, so that's what we do today. 
Uh, we have a team of about 770 people, 775 people, um, spread out across the U.S., but centralized in Madison and Chicago and Birmingham, Alabama, actually our three largest offices. Um, and we've raised to date over half a billion dollars um, to grow and fund the business. So that's a quick state of the union for where we're at right now. Well, you announced your last round of funding, I think it was last year, last April, $240 million at a $2.5 billion valuation. So that was a Series E. So each step along the way, like what was the process like raising capital? Like it's never easy, but I'm sure once you showed that adoption, the business growth, it became more of a investable product. Yeah, no, I mean, it's never easy. Um, later stage is not easy, but only just because there's, you believe it's worth one thing, they believe it's worth something else. It's not a question of would they invest. At that stage, you've proven it out. Like almost everyone would invest. The question is price. So okay. the reason why later stages are harder is you have a bunch of internal people who believe the, the value is this thing and you have external who want to value it at Y, right? Mm -hmm. Early on though, early on, fundraising is, in my opinion, much harder because you're having to convince someone before you have the evidence of enough years of metrics to prove that this is a business. Um, and that takes just a unique set of skills and determination to do it. Because at the end of the day, what you're looking for early on in investors is someone who shares the same thesis about whatever industry that you're targeting. And it's often luck that you find the right partner who has thought about this space before, who agrees with that problem that exists there, and then believes that you're the person to solve it. For me, it's like, you've heard all this where it's like, you have to meet with a hundred people to get a yes. That was true for us. Like we did get probably 98 no's. Um, but the big difference is we took a long time to find the right partner at the right firm who understood what we were doing. And we didn't do the same pitch a hundred times in a row. We were constantly iterating and learning. Our, our, I wouldn't have invested in our first pitch, but where we were at by the 90th pitch, like, oh man, I would have invested too. So I think one thing people misinterpret when someone says it's like, hey, it's one per you just need one person to say yes. It doesn't mean go and do the same thing and not like you have to constantly be iterating, just like finding product market fit. It's the same thing. That's all you're doing for an investor. You're finding the product market fit of an investor who wants to invest in what you're doing. You have to constantly iterate and try different things, look for different people, do your background homework ahead of time. So it's always difficult across the board, difficult for different reasons. Um, but I think the early stage ones are the most misunderstood of why they're difficult. Now, building a business, uh, you know, fundraising is one part of it, but you talked about you have over 700 employees. Yep. So what were your lessons learned of scaling like a, a company, like hiring and culture and like, those are hard things. Endless lessons and ones that are still learning every single day. Um, I think that's one of the crazy things that you learn is like, there's just no right answer of how to do something. Um, I, I think one of the important things that you have to do is you have to constantly be surrounding yourself with people who are honestly smarter than you at what they do. And you can't be intimidated by that. You have to be attracted to that. You have to want to pull those people in because they will through their experience, through what they've seen before, they will both attract people that will help build the team out uh, and looks like look similar from a culture standpoint and believe in the same things, but they'll just help you avoid a bunch of potholes that are known. Someone's made the mistakes. Like, go make new mistakes. You can do that by listening to people um, versus just trying to do everything your way. You're going to hit so many unnecessary things that will slow you down and slow down your ability to grow. Um, but yeah, growing a business at this scale now is very difficult. You, we believe a lot in trust 
Um, and with trust comes transparency. We're super direct with our team about what's going on. The good uh, probably only takes up 20% of communication. We focus on like the things that aren't going right 80% of the time. Yeah. Um, but it takes the right people to understand like just because we're focused on the things that are going wrong doesn't mean we're not all crazy confident on what we're doing and that we're going to be the ones that solve this and keep growing. But it's just we have this internal like innate desire to focus on what we can do better. We internally call it good to great. We always focus on the things that are good enough today are not going to be what take us to the next stage. We have to think about what does greatness look like two, three years from now? And that's what we're, we're guiding towards. So I think a leader, as the company gets larger and larger, it's more about just helping show the company where you can get to. And then just constantly being there as like their sounding board for like, wait, should we do this? Like I very, very infrequently am making final decisions. It's almost always the teams that are doing that. I'll come and challenge their ideas all the time and say like, hey, do we think about this? Do we do this? But at the end of the day, they're the ones making the real decisions. They're the ones uh, allocating the resources. My job is just to continue to steer the ship in a cohesive direction. Um, and, and then that, that seems to work the best versus feeling like I think a lot of founder CEOs feel like because early on they had to do everything. They had to not just steer the ship, but like paddle as well that they need to still do that. But at our scale, you, you can't anymore. That's very, but how did you learn that? How'd you learn to lead? Oh, by and... trying to do it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> by it not working. <laughs> like, all right, I'm done. <laughs> at some point I was Higher. like, okay, I've tried this so many times. It clearly just doesn't work. I need to think differently. Right. Um, I, I, it, but again, it comes down to once you've learned that, like, oh, wait, I don't have to be the first person to solve all these problems. I can surround myself with people who have done this before. And just if I'm vulnerable and ask them and tell them what's going wrong, you'll see how much people want to help, how much they'll share with you what they saw differently. So that for me, like all the pressure used to lay in my shoulders. And I was like a zombie of a person that I am now. Nowadays, it's like, it's so fun. I share all the 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 problems with the team and advisors and board members and like everyone just was like okay let's roll up our sleeves let's solve this that's awesome all right so what's next like where where do you see fetch going future path i mean the crazy part about what we're doing right now is i, I mentioned 10 percent of u.s households are using us every single month but yet our awareness is still crazy low it's i mean we believe that in the u.s we can still grow in our three four hundred percent of households using us um, based upon our current retention, based upon our organic growth rate that we have. So I think one side is like, we just got to keep doing our core business really well and keep challenging ourselves to get better at that. And we'll be able to grow another 10x from here just off of that. Yep. There's all kinds of future things I'm excited for. I want to launch internationally. I'm super passionate about personally traveling and therefore I have an uh, affinity to want to go and launch the business elsewhere and know people face the same problem in numerous other countries so there's no reason why we can't do it elsewhere but i think for us right now the number one thing is stay focused execute on the core deliver more ways for our, our consumers to save deliver more value for our partners using the program if we do those couple of things we can still 10x the business just you know with the basics we're, we're fortunate to just have a big enough opportunity space that we plan for that to be a real uh you know a, a real outcome that we can deliver how'd you land the fetch.com the domain um it, you know it, it had been out there it's one of those things where it's like our success ended up making that way more expensive than it should have been right. we were offered the to owner buy was it. like hmm, yeah five years ago raised? five years ago we could have bought it for you know pennies pennies <laughs> of what we spent now and um yeah. you know but at some point you just still say look what 
it would take to get the the domain now compared to what the business is going to be valuable or valued at and worth five years from now like we just need to do it yeah um well, you don't want fetch app i don't know what the url is before but that's not a thing consumers will rec- remember it's fetch.com that's something you're going to remember and be able to type that in and get there and for us since we're not even a web site like based app right. uh, or our business it was something that took us a lot of justifying and like thinking about True. Yep. but at the end of the day we're like we are going to be you know we have a chance of being a hundred billion dollar company you gotta play like one at some point right like there's no way apple and have apple.com right like right. um so at some point it's like if you believe that and we believe that even though it's not our core business we still think that it's important to you know have our banner planted and like we are doing this all right, so what advice would you have for entrepreneurs on listening to customers and building products to meet their needs? So from what I gathered, um, you know, grocery, like re- grocery retailers was kind of like your bread and butter, but eventually there was a breaking point where you expanded into other categories like restaurants or like, like what advice do you have for like listening to the actual consumer and building what they want versus what you think they need? Um, it's a fine balance. I mean, we, we view this even like on the, the, the app that we build today, we, uh, people always think it's crazy. We don't do surveys. Like as an example, we don't, we don't do a lot of things like that because we always believe like in the scientific method, we should have a thesis, um, around a problem that exists. We should have a thesis for how we think we can solve it. And we should go and iterate and test multiple variations of that. And then look at the data to see what actually worked the best because so often people don't actually know what, uh, you know, what it is that they, they're asking for. Someone will tell you, I like saving money that's actually not the case. They don't like saving money. They actually like spending money. People like going out there and buying things. Um, They want to feel not guilty for doing that, which is why they think they like saving money. Mm -hmm. Um, So like Mm -hmm. even that slight distinction there, yeah, right? Like it it makes it totally different, the product you build. It's the exact same. Yeah, but I got a good deal. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. (laughs) But it's the exact same when we're talking about grocers or CPGs. Like you have to listen to what is it they're trying to solve and then you have to like tease apart like is that actually what they're trying to solve and how ca- how can we help them then truly solve what they're they need to solve um someone will say i need to generate more sales it's like okay yes um that that's probably true but that means you just need to talk to the right people because you have a good product so it's like your actual problem is you're not reaching the right person and letting them know and incentivizing them the right way to go buy it and that byproduct will be driving sales um so again Super important to listen to your, your clients and your customers from a perspective of like hearing what their problem is, but you can't take it at face value because very few people actually know what they're trying to solve. And that's okay. Like that's fine. Uh, you just need to be able to make sure that the solution you then bring forward isn't chasing after what they told you they want, but not what they actually want. Um, that's the hard art to it. Um, that I wish I had like a playbook for, but like, honestly, it's just something you develop over talking with lots and lots of people. Well, thank you for not doing the surveys. Cause I think consumers have survey fatigue. Like I can't, st- I, I can't like every time I'm like, stop it with the surveys. Like every product's like, how do we do? How do we do? I was like, you know what? everyone just X's out of it. Well, just as but a funny like, discretion, di- digression for a second is like, they'll still get their 500 responses that they wanted though. But the people who are responding are not representative right. because they're exactly. only people who love yeah. doing <laughs> surveys. If you ask them, do you like doing surveys? You'll be amazed. 99% will say yes. <laughs> it's like, well, that's because those are the only people responding. Totally. You X'd out of it. Right. Exactly. Uh, too funny. 
All right. What about uh, building out your executive leadership team? Like we talked about hiring, but you know, hiring you know leaders to help scale a business when you're at the scale that you're at, like that's that's a tricky thing. So how how did you go about, you know, finding the right people to help you grow a business at that scale? It's very very tricky. Um, you know, I have a new COO, a new CFO, who both joined us this year, a new CRO. So all three of them joined us this year. So it's an it's a never ending process of. Uh, working with the teams to identify who are the people who have the skill set in that point of time to solve the key problems that you have. And sometimes the problem set that you have changes and the person who is there is just not the right person who's best suited to solve those new problems than they were. And I think it's always just best to be super honest and candid with the people. Like uh, even on executives that I've had who have transitioned either out of the business or to new roles, when you treat them like an adult and just explain like, look, these are the problems. You've never done this before. You had done everything we were doing. You did a great job and you were super valuable for everything. But like next evolution is this. I think that's what paves the way for being able to then bring in new executives. Um, I start there because a lot of people forget, like you're not just always hiring a new CFO. That person's probably replacing someone who was there before. Um, So you got to start by having a clean, hopefully uh, good sheet for them to come into. And teams will know how you treated the former executives. Like people will be aware of that. So I think you have to just handle it with transparency and trust, talk with the people, help them understand. Then when you're going out and looking for who the new person is, there is, again, no shortcut for just spending the time on it. I did 24 interviews myself, 24 hour-long interviews. (laughs) So an entire day by the hours uh, interviewing for the CFO before I found Gideon, who we ended up just hiring. Um, There's no substitute for that. On paper, the other 23 candidates were amazing, and they are amazing in their own rights, but they just weren't the right fit, and you just don't know that, and you can't you can't outsource that work. Like you just have to put it in. So um, you got to trust your gut on the people. Once you find the person, they have the experience, and you know that they're the right fit. Follow your gut on that one, you know. But you have to do the other things right too, so that they get the best chance of coming in and being successful. All right, top three apps you can't live without. Fetch, of course, not being one of them. I was going to say, that was going to be my first one. Um, (laughs) I actually used, I'm trying to think which one. So Uber, definitely, because I travel a ton, and it really helps me both with the food of when I'm traveling in a hotel and I don't want to go out, I just want to work or something like that, and the transportation. So they're definitely there. Um, That's going to be my travel one. I'm not going to give airlines credit for that one. Next one, I, I always use the Weather Channel app. Um, same thing. It's like super utilitarian, but like I, I definitely do that. Um, and then probably Spotify. Um, you can see all these things are central around travel. I like music, podcasts, those type of things. <laughs> like, but I'm gonna applaud you because usually uh, most founders are like oh, Slack, Gmail, my calendar. <laughs> I can't do my job without those ones. Fair. Yeah, but, but that's those assumed. Aren't like, yeah, that's, that's kind of assumed. Like, yeah. Come on. Like, all right. Uh, well, you just kind of answered this, but outside of work, what do you like to do? It sounds like travel, but. Oh, I still like to travel. Yeah, this week, there, this year was my 10-year uh, anniversary uh, since starting Fetch. Mm-hmm. So I took a seven-week sabbatical. Seven weeks. Yeah, Good seven weeks. I went to Tanzania and did a safari, Zanzibar, Dubai, France, Italy, Switzerland, Germany, England, and Scotland. Um, so I love exploring other cultures, experiencing. I, I also love history. So you find a lot of that when you go outside the U.S. Yep. Um, so that's a huge, huge, huge hobby of mine. I love being outside. 
um, whether that's going even for just like a drive to get out of the city and being outside going for a hike, whatever the case is. Um, I love spending time with my loved ones. Like that's really important to me. Um, so across the board, I spend time across all those three things. I still play basketball when I can. Um, but yeah, just things that keep me grounded, balanced. Cool. Well, Wes, thanks so much for taking the time to share the story of your background, history, fetch, and obviously all the amazing advice for other entrepreneurs to follow. Of course. Thanks so much for having me on the show. And I just want to give a final nod to the Startup Boston Week team for all their great, great efforts to make this week possible. And of course, Suffolk University for their great ability to host this program and their amazing entrepreneurship program. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.